Good morning. I have my own announcement. I'll make this announcement again next Sunday. What we want to do, we want to try to do this Thanksgiving holiday is we want to provide for those who are in need a a Thanksgiving basket that includes a turkey and the fixings that go, an uncooked turkey. I just want to make that clear. An uncooked turkey and and the fixings that go along with a Thanksgiving meal for those who need it, either in our body or those that our body knows in their community that would could benefit from that, just as a, an expression of love and an offer of hope. So what we want to do is, if that's you, if you're a person who could benefit from it, or you know someone who could benefit from that basket, someone you know that you could bring that basket to, we want to know that simply by you putting your, your name information on here, just your name on the connection card, and then on the back, just put a, a big T and circle the T for us. That'll let us know this is for the turkey for Thanksgiving. And what we plan on doing, we don't know if this is even something you guys want or, or it is meeting a need in the church, but we want to at least offer it and see what the need is out there. And if you fill those out, then we're going to take, take them, and Lord willing, we'll be able to put these baskets together next Sunday and then have you come pick them up on Monday. And we'll give you the details about that. So be thinking about that. Maybe, maybe you don't need a basket, and that's great. That's wonderful. But maybe you know someone, a neighbor or someone in your community that's really hurting. A lot of people are still struggling in this economy, and maybe this would be a good way for you to just show some love, express some real love to them. Uh, during this Thanksgiving season. Also, next week will be our Thanksgiving service, so don't miss it. That'll be a, it'll be a different service, like we've done before, where we have testimonies, people giving thanks to God for his blessings and his grace in their life. So if there's any questions about that, just please ask me. But this Sunday and next Sunday, if you have any interest in that, please let us know by putting a T on the connection card and turning it in to us. Okay? Let me open with a word of prayer this morning. Father God, I thank you for gathering your people here. They're not just here. They're in many places this morning around this country and even in the world as they gather together to worship you, Father. You alone are worthy of our worship. And we do that in one way by coming before your word and bowing our hearts and our minds before it and letting it have its way with us, being encouraged by it, being instructed by it, being exhorted by it, even being rebuked by it. And, Father, we desire that. We want that. For by your word, as your spirit applies it to our hearts and our minds, we are changed. We are transformed into the people, into the men and the women and the boys and girls that you plan us to be, Father. And that is a good thing. So, Father, I pray this morning, even with all the things that come into our mind regularly and distract us during this time especially, I pray that we would just set aside and devote, devote ourselves right now to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are in 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, looking at verses 13 through 19. And so if you have an outline or a bulletin, you have an outline. Inside of that bulletin you'll see the title of today's message is The Assurance, the assurance of Reciprocal Abiding. Reciprocal abiding. I'll use that word several times. It's a big word, hard to kind of say, but it simply means that it's something that's shared by both sides. Something that's shared by both sides. Another word might be mutual. Mutual abiding. An abiding that is shared by both sides. If you don't have a Bible, just grab one of those blue Bibles. If you flip it open to page 1023, that'll bring you to our text this morning in 1 John. On my right hand, I have a ring that my wife gave me, and it's, if you looked at it, it would probably seem nonsensical to you because it has a bunch of dots and lines on it, but it's Hebrew. It's Hebrew writing, and it's from the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3. There, the, there what is written is these words, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved." And my beloved is mine, and that's what's on my ring. And it's, it's an expression of devotion from the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. She's basically saying, I belong to him. I belong to him, and he 
belongs to me. It's really beautiful. I wear it on my hand because it reminds me of the relationship my wife and I have by the grace of God. But it made me think about, when I was reading this passage, it it made me think about that because the wording here that John uses reminds me of this type of relationship, only not with another person, but instead with God. With God. This idea that I belong to God and God belongs to me. He is mine and I am his. I mean, that is some beautiful language to be thinking on so this morning as we read through the text think about that i am my beloved's and my beloved is mine i am god's if you are a christian today i am god's i belong to him and incredibly beloved he belongs to me he belongs to me so as we read the text think through that let that uh, think meditate on that as we read through it first john chapter 4 follow along verse 13 The writer says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love... Because he first loved us. This morning in your outline you'll see, and we're not going to look at every particular verse in this section. We're going to kind of do an overview here. But you're going to see three truths. We'll consider three truths related to our assurance, our certainty, that we abide in God and God abides in us. This is that reciprocal abiding, that mutual relationship. And we're going to look at those three truths so that we might simply be encouraged by them. The first one is the grounds for our assurance. The second one is the gains from our assurance. And the third one is very simple. It's God's love and our assurance. Now, look back, if you're in your Bibles, look back at the beginning of this chapter. Look at chapter 4 at the beginning, verse 1. John there writes this exhortation to his readers. We've already covered this passage. He wrote this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every spirit. There were some people, I'm just doing this by way of review, there were some people at at the time professing to be of God, but denying or distorting the truth about Jesus Christ and attempting to lead John's readers, his Christian readers, astray. According to God's word, beloved, one of the tests to determine if a person is a true Christian, that is, an adopted child of God, is do they believe, do they believe in, and do they trust in the truth about God's Son, Jesus Christ? That truth specifically being who he is and what he did. If they don't, or they won't, okay? Sometimes they just won't. They refuse to believe the truth. Then according to the word of God, they are not children of God. They are not children of God. It's that simple. And so that's the case that John was making. Do not believe every spirit. We have people who are denying the truth about Jesus Christ, yet proclaiming that they are of God. And John makes it clear at the beginning of this passage, they are not. They are not. Otherwise, they would confess the truth. Now, we see that in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, let your eyes slip down to verse 7. John there says, first he says in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now he says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Another exhortation, and let us love one another. John goes on to say in verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Here is another test given by John to determine whether or not a person is truly a Christian. Do they love one another? Now, beloved, we talked about this, but I'll say it again. 
This is not loving each other perfectly. If we could do that, well, we can't do that. I'm just going to say that. We don't do that. We don't love each other perfectly. And we are regularly, if we are Christians, repenting of the fact that we don't love as we ought. But certainly in our life, repentance includes the idea that I turn from what I was doing wrong and I turn towards what I should be doing. That's the idea of repentance. It's not just, I'm sorry I messed up, but it's I recognize the silliness of that behavior and I turn now to the behavior I should be practicing as a Christian and I begin to walk in love. And then I fail again and I repent. The, life is, the Christian life is just one big cycle of repentance. It is, if you understand it, it is. So when I talk about loving one another, it means that there's a pattern in the person's life of love. They are striving for love, not in their own strength, but in the strength of Jesus Christ and the spirit that resides inside of them. If there is no love for one another, none, that is problematic. According to John, that is a sign that they do not know God because God is love. Now, both tests that John gives here in chapter 4, belief in the truth, about Jesus Christ and loving one another or other Christians in the context are themes that we have seen repeated in John's letter. He keeps coming back to these same ideas, belief in Jesus Christ and love for one another. But in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 4 that we're looking at here, John brings these two themes together. He brings them together, belief and love, and he ties them to the Christian's assurance of having a reciprocal or mutual abiding relationship with God. One writer says this, These two tests of belief and love are now applied more personally, no longer in exhortation, but in affirmation. The belief and love which John has been urging upon his readers, as we see here in chapter 4, are now assumed and conclusions are drawn from them. That brings us to the first point in the outline. And the first point will be the longest, and the next two will be rather short. The grounds for our assurance. The grounds for our assurance. And we'll see this in verses 13 through 16. Looking at the text before us, we see three times... Three times, and I want you to see it too, in verses 13 through 16, that John brings up this mutual relationship with God. And he also provides the grounds or the reasons that we as Christians can be assured that we have this reciprocal relationship with God. The first reference, we saw it, we read it already in verse 13. John says there, by this we know that we what? Abide in him and he in us. That's the phrase. Abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Then you see, let your eyes slip down to verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, here it is again, God abides in him and he in God, same idea, reciprocal abiding, mutual dwelling. Then again, in the latter half or second part of 1 John 4, 16, John there says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now go back to verse 13. We'll start there. There it says, reading it again, by this we know, John says, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. In regard to this phrase, abide in him and he in us, I mean, how do you understand that? What's that mean exactly? I saw, found one commentator, I liked what he said. He said it, this, to live or abide in God, because that's basically what it means, a continual dwelling, a remaining, a living To live or abide in God is a vital, intimate, continuous, and growing reality. The believer has a new, invisible power for the fulfillment of his work on earth. God is in him. God is in him. He realizes that his life is not on earth, but that he belongs essentially to another order. He is in God. So the idea, beloved, is sometimes hard to get our minds around these concepts, but the idea is that 
Yes, I'm here physically on earth, but my life, my true life, my real life, my eternal life is found in God. God, no, no, not only does God abide in me, giving me the power to live out that life, but I abide in God. I dwell in him and one day we'll be with him permanently unhindered. That's the idea. John says we know that we are united with God in this way because God has given us his spirit. Now, beloved, this is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. That is the third person of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the reference here, God the Holy Spirit. This is the same spirit that Jesus promised would be given to his disciples as recorded for us in the Gospel of John. And I want to consider that just for a moment. I want to take a detour. In chapter 14 of John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus had informed his disciples that, hey, guys, I'm going away. I'm leaving. Now, the crucifixion hadn't taken place. The resurrection hadn't taken place. And the reality is that his disciples still didn't really understand what was going on or what was going to happen, that Jesus would be nailed to a cross and murdered. They didn't understand it exactly. So here's Jesus telling them, guys, I'm going away. I'm leaving you. I've been with you for three years. So just remember, this is a tight relationship. They have grown to love the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus loves them, and he has provided for them, and he has been their guide. But now he tells them, guys, I'm leaving. I'm going away, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. But then he assures them, but you're not going to be alone. You're not going to be alone because I'm going to send someone to be with you. So we pick that up in John 14, verse 16, in John's gospel. He says this, And I will ask the Father, he's referring to God the Father, and he will give you another helper. I've been a helper to you. He's going to give you another helper to be with you forever. I've got to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to bring you to myself. I've got to go. But don't be alarmed. I'm sending you another helper. He'll be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Remember that phrase. It's important. The spirit of truth. That's how the Holy Spirit is referred to. The spirit of truth. He says, whom the world cannot receive. When we talk about the world, he means those who are unbelieving, those who are Christ rejectors. They can't receive this helper. You will receive this helper. He says, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and he will be in you. Now that... We probably just read right past that, don't think much about it. But that's amazing because he says, I'm going to send this helper. He's with you now, but he will be in you. He will dwell in you. He will live in you. The promise of the Holy Spirit. We know it's the Holy Spirit because just a few verses down, John chapter 14, verse 26, there Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. What kind of things do you think he will teach? True things. He's the spirit of truth. Things about Jesus Christ. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I mean, just a side note, that's how we have the gospels. These apostles, these disciples received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit guided them and led them into all truth and brought to their remembrance all that Jesus had said to them so that all that we have recorded in the Gospels is a result of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of these men. The Holy Spirit promised by Jesus in John's Gospel is the same Spirit, beloved, that John refers to in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. Okay, So now back to 1 John. John based his assurance of being united to God on the belief that he had been given the Spirit of God. That's what the text says. He bases his assurance that he's united to God, that God abides in him and he in God, based on the fact that he has the Spirit of God. So here's a question. How exactly does one know with a measure of certainty that they actually possess the Spirit of God. How do they know that with a measure of certainty? Is there any 
objective proof. And when I say objective proof, it means anybody can look at it and they can say, yes, that is the evidence that determines whether or not the Spirit of God lives in you. Is there any objective proof that can give us the important assurance that we need that the Spirit of God lives in us, and as a result, we have actually then been united with God in this reciprocal relationship, in this mutual abiding, that he really is ours, and we really are his. Well, there is. There is objective evidence that we see here in First John. Before we look at it, this is not the first time in John's letter here where he refers to us Christians being given the Spirit of God. Look at it with me. You'll see earlier in 1 John chapter 3, it's just the previous chapter, at the end of verse 24, John writes this, and by this we know that he abides in us, and here he says it again, the same phrase, by the Spirit whom he has given us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, it's important here to consider the context in which that statement, the Spirit whom he has given us, was made. So we need to just back up a little bit in verse 23. I'm going to show you something. I'll show you connection here in John's thinking and writing and logic. First John chapter 3, verse 23, he writes this, And this is his commandment, that we believe, one, believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. That's it. That we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and, connected, love one another just as he has commanded us. Then he says in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The statement here in chapter 3 about the Spirit being given to us is made by John in the context of our belief in Jesus Christ and our loving one another just like it is in chapter 4. So is there a connection between the Spirit that abides in us and belief in Jesus Christ and loving one another? Well, I'm fully convinced there is, that that is what's going on, and that is the connection that John is making. And I believe the connection is this specifically. It is only, hear me, it is only by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that anyone comes to believe and embrace the truth about Jesus Christ. For he is the Spirit of of truth, John 14, 17, John 16, 13. And he guides the people into all truth and reveals the truth about Jesus the Christ. And it is only by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that you and I are able to truly, biblically, love one another as we have been commanded. Since love is the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. In other words, when we love one another biblically, it's not me loving you, per se, but it is the Spirit at work in me and through me manifesting His love toward you, and vice versa. So the fact that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that I love one another are both works of the Spirit. Let me develop this a little more for you. John wrote in 1 John, same letter, 1 John chapter 4. Now we're in that same chapter. Go back to verse 2. We looked at this, but I'm trying to bring all of these thoughts now and these ideas together. Here he says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I'm not going to go through all the details of this, but basically whoever confesses the truth about Jesus Christ is from God. And then he goes on to say, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus does not speak the truth about him, that he is the divine man, that he was incarnated, that he is the son of God, 
They are not from God. Whoever does not confess the truth is not from God. Whoever does is. John is basically saying that the proof that someone possesses the Spirit of God and therefore is speaking according to the Spirit of God, in part, is their accurate confession regarding the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay, do you understand? That is the proof that the Spirit of God abides in them. Their accurate confession regarding the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me add something here. The word confession, okay, it implies more than just words. It's more than just words, but it also, the idea also includes faith, belief, and trust. Faith, belief, and trust. In other words, confession should be understood as more than just a statement that you make, but rather it is a statement based on your belief and your trust. Okay? Based on your belief or your trust and your trust. Think of it this way. It is conviction verbalized. It is conviction in your heart and in your mind verbalized or said or spoken. Confession. One writer says it this way. The idea of confession includes acceptance of the reality of what is being confessed. Okay, so when someone confesses Jesus Lord, when we see that terminology, it just doesn't mean they say Jesus Lord, but they are accepting the reality of the statement that they just spoke. They are trusting in it. They are putting their belief in it. It is their belief, therefore they're confessing that belief. Now the Apostle Paul, just to show you, just to drive this home a little bit more, what I'm trying to get at, the Apostle Paul makes a very similar statement to John's statement in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Maybe you've read it and wondered about it, but there he says in the latter half, he says, no one can say, that's a little more than I, so he says here, no one can say, look at the bottom there, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. This is what Paul says. No one can say, So no exceptions. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if I tell someone to repeat the phrase Jesus is Lord like a four-year-old and they say it, is that then proof that they possess the Holy Spirit? No, beloved. I'm going to answer it for you. No, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what's being implied. That's not the idea. Paul was communicating that a person will not truly recognize, embrace, and confess Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. They will not acknowledge him in their hearts and therefore confess it with their mouth that Jesus Christ is truly who he says he is, the Son of God, the divine man, Lord and King and ruler and reigner, unless the Holy Spirit is at work inside of them. It is the Holy Spirit that brings a person to that conviction that they confess. Okay? That's what's being said. It is only by the Spirit of God that any such confession of faith can be made. You know why? Because in this unsaved world, beloved, the entire truth, we see this in Scripture, the entire truth about Jesus is rather ridiculous to them. It is ridiculous to them. The Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, he says this. You may know it. You may have heard it. 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness. It is folly. It is ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, to Christians, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. The word of the cross, beloved, that phrase, that, that's the gospel. It is the message about Jesus Christ, who he really is and what he really did, which includes his shameful crucifixion. That's right. The Son of God was crucified, was shamefully crucified, was hung there naked to die. And it also includes his glorious, supernatural Resurrection. That's the message of the cross. It's included in that. That this one who died got back up. He didn't resuscitate. He didn't just come back. He didn't just you know go down for a little while, pass out and come back. He was dead three days in the tomb and he resurrected to newness 
of life. In summary, the gospel or the message of the cross is God's incredible loving plan to redeem and rescue sinners from their certain fate of hell. One writer says, to the Christ rejectors, the gospel is nonsense. It's nonsense. That message is nonsense. But to those who believe, to believers, it is powerful wisdom. And listen, if we believe the gospel, if you, because I don't assume, I never assume for a second that everyone who sits in a chair in here actually subscribes to acknowledges, embraces, believes, trusts in the gospel, the message of the cross. That would be silly for me to think that. I am certain there are some of you who don't. Not really. You might acknowledge something about that as a historical fact, but you have not embraced it. You don't really confess it. You don't really believe it. You don't really trust. If you did, you would live certainly differently because what you're confessing is he is Lord Not just Lord out there, but Lord of you. Lord of you. But if we believe the gospel, it is not because we are smarter or more intelligent than those who don't. Have you ever thought about that? Why do I believe the gospel? And why doesn't my neighbor believe it? Why do I believe it? We both have the same facts before us. We both have access to the same information. Why does Jeremy believe the gospel? And why doesn't my neighbor believe it? Why do they refuse? Do you think that it's because I'm smarter? I get it and they don't. They're just dumb. Beloved, that's not the case. That is not the case. One person does not believe the gospel, embrace the gospel, confess the gospel because they somehow are smarter. Imagine if that was the case. Then I would have a reason to boast when I stand before God in heaven. Well, look at them. They were just ignorant. They were just dumb. They were just stupid. Look how wise I am. Look how smart I am because I believed it. That is not the case, beloved. There are many smart people who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many not so smart on this level of intelligence, whatever how I'm going to define that. Maybe their IQ is lower. Who do? And then vice versa. That has nothing to do with it. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, the same place in chapter 1, verse 18, where we talked about the foolishness of the cross. He says there, let the one who boasts... And he's referring to his salvation. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who brags, brag in the Lord. If we confess Jesus Christ and believe the gospel, it is only, hear me, it is only because of the Spirit of God who indwells us and no other reason. No other reason. Our salvation from start to finish is a work of God. It is him. It is what he has done. It is what he is doing. And it is what he will do. He started it. He's continuing it. And beloved, he will finish it. It is all him. All the glory is his. You will take no credit for your salvation when you stand before God. You will take none. You will give it all to him. It is his. It will remain his. And it will always be his. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, he says. Same chapter. And because of him, God. Because of him, you and me. We are in Christ Jesus speaking to Christians. It's because of him. Now, when it comes to loving one another, the same exact thing can be said. We talked about this last week, but the love that we are to exercise toward one another, according to the scriptures, is not natural. (laughs) It is not natural. It is actually supernatural. Just as belief in Jesus Christ is supernatural because it is a work of the spirit. That's the only explanation, beloved. That's. 
That's how I understand why I believe and my neighbor doesn't. Even though my neighbor is brilliant, even though they are smart, they still think the message of the cross is foolishness. Why do I get it? Why do I accept it? Supernatural. Why do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Not perfectly, certainly not. But why do I do that? Supernatural. It is the work of God's spirit in my life. It cannot exist apart from the work of God's spirit in my life. Again, who gets the credit? God. God. That's why he says in 1 John 4, 7, we looked at this already. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves, here's the conclusion, they've been born of God. Whoever loves like I'm telling you to love, that is a definite sign. They've been born of God and they know him. This doesn't mean they know about him. They have a relationship with him. As John will go on to explain, a reciprocal, abiding Mutual relationship, God in them and they in God. As I said last week, this love is not a virtue that's innate with us. In other words, we're not born with this ability to love as we've been commanded, nor is it a learned behavior. We can't just watch other people do it and then try to figure it out and emulate it. This is from God. That's what the writer says. He is the originator. He is the giver of this kind of supernatural love. So now, with all of that, let me summarize what I believe is the message of verses 13 through 16 with this quote that I found very helpful. The Bible commentator says, Here then is the sequence of thought that John is trying to communicate to us through verses 13 through 16. Listen. We know as Christians that we live in God and God in us, that we abide in God and God in us because he has given us of his spirit. Of his Holy Spirit. And, that's verse 13. And we know that he has given us his spirit because we have come to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 15. And abide or dwell or live in love. Verse 16. That's the idea. That is what I believe John is communicating. One writer says it this way. Faith and love are at the same time. So faith, belief. Faith and love are at the same time fruit, something that is produced in our life, and evidence of one who is indwelt by God. It is this indwelling that makes the fruit possible. And it is only that indwelling, beloved. This is why these are solid evidences or tests that any person can lay on themselves to determine whether or not someone is truly a child of God. It is not only faith and love, the fruit of their life, they will see it in their life, but it is also the evidence in their life that they are of God, that they are born of God, that they abide in God, and that God abides and dwells and lives in them. The grounds for our assurance of being united with God, him living in us and us living in him, is the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying it another way. It is the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, dwelling in us. And it is that Holy Spirit that has led us to confess the truth about Jesus Christ and empowered us to live out the love of God that dwells in us. So that's the first point. That is... The grounds for our assurance. The second one is the gains from our assurance. The gains from our assurance. By that I mean, what are the personal advantages that come to us by having this assurance that we have a mutual abiding relationship with God who is love? He dwells in us and we in him. He is ours and we are his. Look back at the text with me. First John chapter 4, verse 17. John says there, by this is love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. I believe the phrase by this, by this, that that verse starts with in verse 17 is most naturally understood as a reference to what John just said in verse 16 about the Christian's mutual abiding 
with God. So let's just go back to 1 John 4, 16, the last part of it, and let's read it all together. There, John says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So what is John saying? Because this can get a little confusing. I believe that he is saying that by us being united to God, or as I keep saying, this mutual abiding or this reciprocal relationship, by that reality, God's love then reaches its intended goal in our lives. It is made perfect, or a better translation might be made complete. It reaches its intended goal with the result being confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence for the day of judgment. So where does this confidence come from? Where does it come from exactly? One writer says it this way. It comes from an intimate relationship of love already established with the one who is the judge in the future day. Instead of fear, there will be an experience of boldness toward him. Because of solid evidence of a living, personal relationship with him. Okay? So the idea is this. Knowing or being assured that God lives in us and we in him will give us this benefit. Confidence in the final day of God's reckoning with this world. It is, beloved, our spirit-produced belief in Jesus Christ and love of God and one another that assures us that we actually have a relationship, a relationship grounded in love with God. That's the first one. Confidence in the day of judgment. Another advantage that comes from our assurance of a mutual relationship with God who is love is freedom from fear. Freedom from fear. Look back at the text, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. John writes this. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And listen, again... It is a little difficult to understand all that John might be trying to communicate here, but some of the basic ideas. If you're a true Christian, you should not, you should not, beloved. This is not like a, you're doing a bad thing, but it's a thing that's hurtful to you. You should not and need not, if you're a true Christian, fear God in the sense of, Dreading his condemnation or wrath or punishment. That's what I think is being communicated here. You should not. You need not. Certainly, when we talk about the fear of God, there are two different concepts. One concept is holy reverence, awe, respect of God for who he is. He is holy. He is mighty. He is sovereign. He is ruler. He is creator. He is God. We are not like him. We are distinct from him. He is exalted above us. There is a holy reverence. But that's not what John's talking about here. He's talking about the kind of fear where you dread something. Punishment. Wrath. Condemnation. He's talking about the kind of fear that a a dog has that has been beaten by his owner. Do you know what I'm talking about? So every time the dog approaches another human being and they raise their hands to say hi or anything, what does the dog do? The dog cowers. The dog bends his head down. The dog puts his tail between his legs. That's the kind of fear John is talking about. The Christian should not have that kind of fear of God. One writer says it this way, there should be no dread in the life of the one in whom God Dwells in whom God dwells. Why? Why is that true? Well, Lauren Eider says it this way Since the person who stands in a relationship of love to God 
stands in no danger of condemnation and judgment. It follows that he has no need to be afraid of God. No need. Beloved, the Christian, if they understand rightly what has been done for them and on their behalf through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his perfect life, which is credited to your account so that you now are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and all of your sins forgiven because Christ took the punishment for them on the cross. When a person rightly understands that and realizes that that all was a manifestation a demonstration of God's love toward us. He initiated it. He planned it. He predetermined it. And then through his spirit, he brought you, drew you to himself and poured out his love on you and into you and gave you his spirit that you might confess Jesus Christ as Lord and love him and love one another. When you realize all that, then you have no reason to dread him any longer. No reason to fear any condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. You have no reason to fear judgment if you are a child of God. Our mutual relationship with God is not one that is established in fear, but it is established in love. God's love. And then everything, because of that, in our relationship with God, should be motivated by that very love. Not by fear, beloved. This is not a fear-based relationship. There are human relationships like that, right? They're awful. They're awful. That's not the relationship that the children of God have with God. It is a relationship grounded in, established in, his love. One writer says this, For the Christian love is first an experience of the Father's love for us. That love is so powerful and life-changing that when we know it, we are forever removed from the fear of God. Or at least we should be. Or at least we should be. If a person is afraid of God, beloved, in this way, they dread his condemnation, his judgment, his wrath, afraid that they will face his punishment at the judgment. Then one writer says this, the love of God has not yet filled that person's heart and driven out all fear. Beloved, God does not want us as his children, those of you that are his children, to live in fear of him. Not the kind of fear that I'm talking about here, but rather to live in confidence, in confidence, boldness, knowing that God, who is love, actually lives in them. That's I just can't even get over that. Every time I say it, I'm struck by it. Abides in them, and not only that, but they abide and live and dwell in this God who is love. Finally, quickly, God's love and our assurance. God's love and our assurance. It's the final point, the last verse. It's simply this, 1 John 4, 19. John says, we love because, we love because, here's why, and we're kind of repeating the same themes again, but it's kind of drawing it all to a conclusion. We love because he first Loved us. Short verse, very significant. Hear me out. If we love God and we love others as God's word instructs us us to, then we can be absolutely certain that we have already, already experienced God's love. We have already become recipients of of it. I'm not waiting for it. I'm not hoping one day to achieve it or receive it. I already have it. I already have it. If I love God and I love 
one another. We don't have to question it. We don't have to wonder about it. There should be no doubt in your mind that God abides in you and you, unbelievably, me, abide and dwell in God. If I love God, if I believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, if I put my faith in Him and I love His children, those born of Him, other Christians. Why? Because I've already said this. Because our ability... Our capacity to love God and others biblically is due entirely to God's love for us and in us that has already occurred and is happening and continues to happen. In this world, beloved, we, we love in our human relationships, right? And often that love is not reciprocated. Do you know what I'm talking about? We love, but the love doesn't return. It is not shared. It is not mutual. It's a one-way street of love. But that is not the case with God. That is not the case with God. Those who love God have already been loved by Him. And they continue to be loved by Him. And you know what else? God's love, this is awesome, God's love will remain on us and in us for nothing, and I mean nothing according to the Word of God, can ever separate the child of God from His love. Nothing can interrupt this mutual reciprocal relationship with God who is love. Nothing can undo the fact that I abide in God and God abides in me. Nothing can break this statement that He is mine and I am His. Nothing. Paul says in Romans 8:38, For I am sure, I am confident, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither death or life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation in case I forgot anything will be able nothing to separate us. Who is us? Christians, children of God, those who have been born of God, those who have this reciprocal abiding relationship, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we find it. That is our access to it. That's where God's love dwells and remains through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what opened the floodgates, as I said last week, what Christ did. That's what opened the floodgates to God's love. And those who believe have already experienced that love. That's why they believe. That's why they love. Being assured that God lives in you, beloved, and you in God, it can and it should. It can and it should give you confidence, strength, hope, and peace. Peace, beloved, that we all desperately need in this crazy, psychotic, messed up, upside down world. Yeah, just thinking about this. I, it's not the same, so don't, don't accuse me of making the same comparison, but it's, it's similar. I think of the relationship I have with my wife. And by the grace of God, I know everyone's got problems and all that, but by the grace of God, we have an incredible Marriage, where this ring is the truth. I am hers, and she is mine. And that kind of assurance gives me great confidence and strength and hope in this world, and that's just the relationship I have with my wife. Now think about this. It's on a whole other level. But to be assured and to be reminded of the reality that I am God's and He is mine. 
He's mine. I mean, he is and he's mine. And nothing can change that. That gives me confidence and strength to stand in the midst of all the mess of this world and all the storms that look to take us down. It is that hope. And that's what John wants more than anything. I want you to know. I want you to know that you know that you have eternal life. That you have this relationship with God. Because he knows the power of that knowledge, of that assurance. If you are a Christian, beloved, if you are, then you are God's. And he is yours. And that truth is simply amazing and worth remembering again and again and again. Let's pray. Father God, I'm humbled. I am humbled by this truth. I am humbled by the fact that you extended yourself, you reached out to sinners like me. You took the initiative and you rescued me. You loved me. You gave me your spirit. And by that spirit now, you abide in me. You live in me. You dwell in me. And I in you. God, I am humbled. I am humbled. I am grateful. Father, help me in the midst of of stuff. Help us. While we live in this world, we know we will have tribulation. We will have trials. We will have problems. This place is messed up and we are messed up. And we live with messed up people. And we go to church with them. Help us to to focus in on this. You abide in me and I in you. If I am your child, that is the truth and nothing can change that. Your very power exists in me in order for me to continue in this world and continue to the end and persevere so that one day I will be with you. I will never face your judgment, your condemnation, your penalties, your punishment because of Jesus Christ. That's, Father, help us. Help us meditate on these realities, these truths. Help us read the scriptures in that way. But, Father, I also know there are those here who are not children of God. They do not really confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh, they might know about it. They might even say it, but they don't trust in it. They don't put their confidence in it. They haven't truly accepted it. Father, they don't have the evidences in their life that give them the assurance of a mutual, reciprocal, abiding relationship with you. They don't have them. And therefore, they do fear. They fear the judgment. And they fear you, God, and they should. For we know, Father, that your day is coming, that day of reckoning, where judgment will be brought upon all those who have rejected your Son, Jesus Christ, really, who have rejected your love, who have spurned it, who have spit on it, because they would not receive it, humbly bow before it, and accept it, and embrace it with their heart and their mind. Father, I pray for them, I pray for them, I plead with you, please, Through the strength and power of your spirit, would you break through all that ridiculous, bogus nonsense that they offer up as an excuse to not bow before you and open their hands wide and just receive the gift of salvation. Father, I pray you would break through that. You would bring them, draw them sovereignly to that place granting them the gift of your spirit that they might believe, that they might confess, 
And that they might know for once and for all the love of God in their heart and in their lives. I pray these things, Father, for your glory to be manifested among us by saving sinners as you have saved us. We pray all these things and come before you boldly because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who willingly gave his life for us. In his name, amen.